And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. On today's program, we're going to be talking about what promises to be a very powerful theatrical presentation taking place at Carthage tomorrow night. Not from the theater department. They are responsible for all kinds of powerful and, and entertaining presentations. But this is from an, an outsider, if you will. And this is under the auspices of the uh, Women's and Gender Studies Program at Carthage. This is a presentation uh, titled Intrusion. And it is a one-woman show uh, created by and presented by a professional actress by the name of Kirat uh, and Kadwani. And in this program, she embodies eight different characters as we explore in various ways the experience of sexual violence. And uh, we're going to be talking with her a little bit later in the hour. But for this first part of the program, I am excited to be able to uh, speak on the morning show with a faculty colleague of mine from Carthage, Ellen Hauser, who is director of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Carthage, associate professor of political science and uh, women and uh, gender studies. And uh, Professor Hauser has a really intriguing resume which has actually taken her all over the world. She has taught in China. She has done research in Uganda. She has worked in Washington, D.C. Uh, she teaches courses that touch on various issues, including women in politics, global poverty, uh, Africa in transition, and much, much more. She has taught at Carthage since 1999. And uh, Ellen Hauser, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I am glad that you are here. And ahead of us talking specifically about tomorrow night and this program and why it is being brought to Carthage, uh, I think it would be interesting uh, for our listeners to get a little sense of the women's and gender studies program at, at Carthage and, in a sense, what its primary focus is. How would you describe that to people? Well, the Women and Gender Studies program was uh, created in 1995, so we're almost going to be reaching our 25th anniversary. Next year we will be uh, celebrating our 25th anniversary. And it has really grown in the past couple of years. It is um, an academic um, way of looking at the lenses and experiences of women um, because traditional academia tends to look at um, focus on experiences from a very different perspective and leave women and people of color out of the traditional canon and the traditional um, ways of academic thinking and academic research. And women's and gender studies nationally came about as an attempt to um, to uh, kind of fix this, to kind of um, promote um, uh, different ways of looking at life and academia and academic subjects. So we're very proud. We have about um, 25 or 30 students in our program, and we offer a minor and a self-designed major. We have about um, 12 dedicated faculty to the program with other faculty that also teach cross-listed courses. And um, so we have quite a vibrant program that we're excited about. Yeah. I think one of the things for outsiders looking in uh, is, you know, kind of the question of, of specifically when we talk about women's studies, uh, which women are we talking about? And because women were... Uh, in so many cases facing closed doors and very limited access to, for instance, certain circles of power or influence or, or whatever, uh, that 
in, in a very grievous way, left a lot of gifted women, uh, in a sense, kind of out in the cold or unable to contribute as they might otherwise have contributed. So given that reality, then uh, then then who do we talk about and in what way do we try to lift that up? That's a very interesting question because a woman is not a woman. You know, there is not one woman. <laughs> so we can't say there's one woman's experience. And that was a fault of the early women in gender studies programs in the United States is they tended to focus on white, middle, and upper class women's experiences and say that was the women's experience. Women's and gender studies across the country has become much more multicultural in the past decade or so. And our program very much seeks to bring in voices of a variety of women and teach about um, women of color, women of Africa, African-American women, um, and you know various voices so that it's there isn't just one woman's experience. There's a multitude of women's experiences. It's called intersectionality, yeah. um, intersect, intersecting identities based on race, gender, nationality, ability, and so forth. There's various different identities. And depending on a woman's um, intersecting identities, her experiences and her views of the world are going to be different. Mm. So it's important that we not think about this too simplistically. Right, yeah. right. Uh, and I wonder if you, how much you kind of grapple with, for instance, where you come from and your own perspectives versus the perspectives that other one, others might bring to this. What kind of a challenge is it to, for instance, open up your own view on all of this beyond what would be your own perspective? That is, it takes constant self-reflection. And in fact, that is a... Um, pedagogical tool of mine in the classroom to include more voices. It's it, there's feminist pedagogy in the classroom. And that involves constant self-reflection to make sure that I'm not just um, privileging my voice as a white, middle-class, well-educated female, that I'm also listening to and recognizing other voices and other experiences. So it does take constant self-reflection about my position and where I stand and um, how I can make sure to listen to other voices, too. Right. Is it, in a sense, the purpose of, of such a program to make it unnecessary someday? That is, would it be your hope that eventually the voices of women around the world, uh, throughout history and from various cultures and perspectives, would be so woven into the fabric of academia and what we do that it wouldn't require kind of a distinct treatment as it's receiving right now? Or or is that also kind of a simplistic assumption that someday you hope you'll be out of a job because uh, these voices will not remain marginalized uh, or neglected in the way that they are right now? That's exactly it. I would love to be, well, I wouldn't love to be out of a job, but I would love to not have the need for a women and gender studies program because um, uh, these voices and uh, ways of doing research and ways of studying and looking at the world would be integrated into what is now the norm. However, the first women and gender studies programs in the United States came around about 50 years ago, and we've made some progress, but I don't think that there's any danger of my being out of a job to do that anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> I have a feeling you're right. I think the reason my first question to you was kind of couched in the way it was was because not so much limited by my perspective as a you know, white male, but more thinking very specifically in my own discipline of music, where 
uh, I think someone could really kind of confront an interesting question about if you want to talk about the 19th century musical scene, there are these giant figures that you just have to talk about, and they're all men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I mean, in terms of the, 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 the composers who are most important and most influential, which is not to say there weren't tremendously gifted women, but unfortunately, they were neglected and barricaded from being as meaningful contributors as, as possible, which does not mean those voices should be ignored, but where should they be right. in the whole scope of what we examine? And I think that probably remains a quandary for a lot of people in education, not just at the collegiate level, about where these voices belong as we teach students about the world and about our history. Well, and I think one of the issues with the topic you raise, for, for example, with music, is that um, looking at the social and cultural factors of why were these women, these talented female musicians, why were they not able to come forth? You know, mm. why, were some of the, why did some of them have to publish under anonymous or under their brothers or their your husband's uh, names? Exactly. So studying that, um, looking at the social and cultural um, uh, factors that, that made these women more invisible, um, I think, is important. Absolutely. Yeah. And and although it probably should be talked about in a in a music history course, uh, in some ways it's probably important that it be taught even more thoroughly within a program like yours where that can really be examined from a probably much richer point of understanding. Mhm. Yes. Uh, so the uh, program is going to celebrate uh, it's 25th anniversary in right. 2020, and it sounds like you have special things in mind uh, to commemorate that. Right. We're bringing in a few speakers next year, and we're going to have a book reading on campus that will be open to students, faculty, and staff. Um, we hope to have uh, an alumni event at homecoming, not this homecoming, but a, a future homecoming. Um, so we have a variety of events that we want to do to celebrate. Very good. And it does overlap in some respects with another commemoration at Carthage, which is namely the 150th anniversary of the first woman studying at Carthage. And evidently, that took place at a time when it was relatively uncommon. Right, right. Um, Carthage wasn't the first college to have a woman on campus, um, but it was, you know, it was in the first group of colleges that had women on campus. So something for us to be proud of. One other thing I want to ask you about before we uh, turn our attention to uh, the topic of tomorrow night's presentation, Intrusion. Um, You come to Carthage, you've been there 20 years with a, a really rich and varied resume that I touched on as I introduced you at the top of the uh, interview. I wonder if you could just, first of all, maybe flesh out a little bit about those little high points that I gave. Uh, give our listeners some sense of what you have done and where your professional life has actually taken you. Uh, and then I'm really anxious to know how you feel that, in a sense, uh prepared you for the, the varied work that you do now at Carthage, which is, of course, a liberal arts institution? Well, my professional path has kind of taken not a, a polite way of saying it would be not a direct path, not a direct route. Um, after my master's in political science, I worked in China teaching English at two different universities, and that was right after Tiananmen Square. So I was there a few months after Tiananmen Square. So some wow. of my students you know, were active in the program, in the, in the protests, and so I got to hear about that. Um, 
then I returned to Madison and got my PhD in development studies, which is an interdisciplinary program studying development. And during that, I um, went. I spent time in Uganda doing research with government officials and foreign diplomats, uh, looking at issues of um, democracy and foreign aid in in Uganda. And then I worked in Washington, D.C. through the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I was a diplo an international diplomacy fellow at USAID. And in and that, I did work. Um, I was part of the front team for President Clinton's um, trip to Rwanda. We went to Rwanda to interview government officials to see, after the genocide, to see what we could do to help Rwanda. Um, so. I guess all of that informs how I teach my, I have practical examples of things when I talk about issues in class. I, um, I have very practical examples of, of life in other countries and politics in other countries. Um, I also um, have, have been a single mother for most of the years I've been at Carthage. So in terms of gender studies, I understand the, that reality of being raising a child on your own and facing some of the, you know, sometimes I read about single mothers and I think, oh my goodness, I'm a, I'm a statistic, you know, I'm, <laughs> I fit into these categories. Um, so I bring real life experience uh, to the classroom when I t talk about it. And there's one other thing I want to raise about the Women and Gender Studies program. We do have men in our program, too. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you about that. And we have male students and we have male faculty. That's really so good to know. So I want to make it clear that the program is also for males. And um, I have males in my classes, and they take part in the classes and are very welcome and important people in the classes. And I think it's important for men to learn about these issues too, and also to examine gender and their masculinity in terms of how that's defined. I think some of them come away from these classes with some lessons um, for themselves, the, uh, benefits for themselves in terms of how they define themselves. I have no doubt of that, and I'm really, it's gratifying to hear that. Yes. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking in part one of today's morning show with Ellen Hauser, who is director of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Carthage uh, and also associate professor of political science. And uh, it is under the auspices of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Carthage that a special a theatrical presentation is taking place uh, tomorrow night at Carthage in Warburg Auditorium, uh, a program called Intrusion, a one-woman show by Kurat and Kadwani. Uh, so, Professor Hauser, um, let's talk first of all about the issue of sexual violence, which this, uh, this uh, performance, uh, Intrusion, concerns itself with. Uh, tell us, I mean, although it's glaringly obvious that this is a serious problem, but right. why is this something that, that your program is taking up in this way? Well, it's a way that we can hopefully bring about um, positive dialogue on our campus about an important issue that uh, affects our campus as well as all campuses um, in the United States. Um, it's a worldwide problem. The sexual violence of women is, is just rampant around the world. And um, about one in five, depending on which statistics you look at, about one in five women in the United States will be raped at some point in their lifetime. Wow. And one in 71 men. So it does affect men too, but 90% of sexual assault victims are female. 
Um, on campuses, it's even it's even higher. It's between um, 20 to 25 percent of college women um, report uh, are victims of forced sex, and 15 percent of college men. So for college men, it's also higher. Um, women of color are much more likely to be sexually assaulted than white women are. So this is a real problem, and um, it does get some exposure and some um, attention, but we just felt that it's important to bring this to the attention of our campus. It also nicely coincides with um, a few students on our campus have just decided over the summer to bring a program called Thursdays in Black. And it is um, sponsored by the World Council of Churches. And it is, um, they're going to be um, providing stickers and pens and asking people to wear black on Thursdays as raising awareness of and looking for solutions to, to sexual violence in the world. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it was a student's initiative. Yeah. And so that's something that will begin shortly? Right. And I think they're going to have a table outside the performance to, um, that's my understanding, to um, get people aware of this program. Very good. Um, I, I, I don't know if this is something that you have extensively studied. Uh, obviously, it is an issue of, 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 of certainly of concern to you. Do you have any sense of whether or not this is a problem that is growing worse, or is it or has there been some improvement in terms of these really disturbing statistics? Uh, I, I must confess, I'm embarrassed to confess, that, that I have not followed this issue closely enough to have much mm-hmm. of a sense of that. I mean, is this something we are seeing more of, or with our at least growing openness about it, uh, are we maybe seeing these numbers beginning to go in the right direction? I don't know. I don't have um, the figures in terms of whether it's improving. I do know it's hard to compare figures because there's more awareness of it now. Mm. And so if you compare statistics, the question is, has have the numbers gone up or is there just more reporting of it? Right. Yeah, um, it, that's a good point. In some ways, it feels like it is everywhere. Right. And, and chances are, uh, in, 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 in days of yore, it was everywhere, but even worse, it was in the shadows and not talked about or not revealed, right? Uh, to, to to some extent, at least. Well, and I think the Me Too movement has brought about more awareness to not just sexual assault but sexual harassment. Um, I will say that that some some reports say that ninety percent of sexual assault victims on college campuses do not report their assaults. So, whereas um, in the current political climate, there's a concern that, you know, of there being false, false accusations. The statistics, act, the studies actually show that a crime is much more likely to be not reported than for there to be a false accusation against someone. Wow. And I suppose because we teach at a college, it is of special concern to us if, if students t- to that staggering degree are not reporting something like this, uh, right. that that needs to change. Right, right, and I think there's all sorts of reasons why students don't report it. There's a there's a um, first of all, they may not know how to report it. They may not know the appropriate uh, avenues for reporting that. The Title IX coordinator at uh, Carthage, she's also going to be at the Intrusion Show, and hopefully we can get more inf- information out about appropriate um, steps to take if you if if a woman is assaulted or a man, also if a man is assaulted. Um, 
I think there's also embarrassment. There's shame. Um, I think also there's the the fear of retribution or stigma. You know mm-hmm. that other students will. You know they don't want their name to be known. They don't want they don't want to make a big deal out of it. Right. Um, but yes, it, it's a real problem. Right, and it is a big deal. I mm-hmm. mean. Uh, and nothing that should be minimized at all. So tell us about the choice to bring this particular program in, this program called Intrusion, this one-woman show with eight different characters. Uh, did someone hear about this and hear good things about it, I assume? I heard good things about it, and I looked into it. Um, it looked intriguing. Uh, I looked at the the uh, the video um snippet and mm. it looked it looked like a really intriguing show when I looked at the reviews and I thought that theater would be an interesting way to approach this topic so it's not just a lecture or you know something like that it's not just an academic means of bringing light to this topic it's a, an artistic way of bringing light to this topic and hopefully we will reach, reach more people at Carthage and also in the wider community by doing this very good so again this performance is going to be uh, tomorrow night uh, in Warburg Auditorium do I remember it starts at 7 30 mm-hmm. and uh, there's a very small admission fee of, of five dollars uh, to help uh, uh, cover the costs of uh, of bringing this presentation uh, to to Carthage, and of course, the hope is that many people will seek out this opportunity to uh, experience this program again called Intrusion. Uh, Ellen Hauser, director of the Women's and Gender Studies program at Carthage and associate professor of political science, I appreciate you uh, being here today on the morning show, and certainly grateful for you bringing uh, this uh, this fine program. Uh, to Carthage tomorrow night. I hope a lot of people will seek it out. And thanks for being part of the morning show to get out the word. Great. Thank you. And now it's time to introduce you to the talented actress who is responsible for this one-woman play called Intrusion, Kurat An Kadwani, probably best known for an award-winning one-woman play from a few years ago called They Call Me Q, which, among other things, explores her very interesting life's journey. I was born in Mumbai, India, And I immigrated to New York with my family when I was a child. And I grew up in the Bronx, uh, home of the Yankees. (laughs) (laughs) I went to, um, you know, public schools all my life. I went to, uh, when I was in high school at the Bronx High School of Science, I was on the speech team, which is part of a national forensics team that's comprised of the speech and debate teams. And that's where I really started to uh, really embrace uh, acting and, and theater. And then when I went to college, I hadn't declared a theater major yet, but I was pretty much taking every class I could um, and also acting in productions. And while I was there at SUNY Geneseo, I took some political theater classes. And uh, those classes really informed me on how theater can impact social change. So as I learned about how theater was used as a force um, globally to move audiences, to address the the social woes of the day, I I started thinking to myself, how could I do the same thing and really motivate audiences through my art, through through my own voice, to use their own voices to make changes in their own societies and their own communities. And that's a big part of what your career is all about. I would love to know just a little bit more about that, that course in political theater. Can you uh, sum up maybe one or two uh, new insights that you gained from taking that course, new insights into what was possible within the realm of theater when it comes to political change? Absolutely. You know, a lot of actors 
these days it's all about TV and film, but it's important to remember and, and recognize that that acting and all the arts started off with theater, with live audience, well before the Greeks when we look into um, uh, religious dramas in India and other parts of the world. We saw that uh, communities would use theater to enact um, certain issues that were going on. We saw that theater was used a way, as a way to, um, in, in, in South Africa, to uh, speak up against apartheid. Uh, and even in Europe during World War One, World War Two. There were so many different theater forms, uh, absurdism, you know, well before Ruben came in to address uh, how crazy and how ridiculous the wars were. Um, and and it, it was really used as a way to um, not just be entertaining, but to be educational as well. So when I was in college, when I was 19, I was back in New York City for the summer, and that was when I saw my first solo play. And I'd never seen something like this before one woman on stage acting out so many different characters uh, with themes of acceptance and racism and um, being being different or or trying to show that trying to show what American being American means. I was so moved by this and I thought, could I ever do this? Do I even have something to say? Um, so about ten years ago when I started writing my first show, they call me Q. I, I remembered, you know, a lesson that, we, that we've heard so many times, which is write what you know. And so my first show is about my life, being born in India but growing up in the Bronx, and what it means to, be, uh, to, to travel that, that fine line between your traditional culture and what it means to be American. When I started writing Intrusion uh, a few years ago, about three, four years ago now, I was very interested and in, in appalled at the... At the amount of sexual violence that occurs globally. And I thought to myself, what can I do to impact social change? And that's how I started writing this play. Hmm. We're speaking with Kurat Ann Kadwani about her one-woman play, Intrusion, which is going to be performed uh, tomorrow night uh, at Carthage in, in Wartburg Auditorium. I'm curious uh, to know much more about Intrusion, but ahead of really digging into it, I'm curious... Uh, about the difference. I assume that as you first explored theater that you were part of certain theatrical performances that we would think of as more standard theatrical fare in which you were sharing the stage with other performers, with other actors, interacting, bouncing off of them and so on, uh, versus uh, what you do with They Call Me Q and with this new one-woman play, intrusion where it is simply you on the stage. Can you compare those two experiences, uh, what it is like to, in a sense, be acting and reacting with other performers versus having the stage entirely to yourself? How different are those two undertakings for you artistically? Sure. They, they are very different and yet similar in some ways in uh, productions that have a full cast in college as well as um, professional theater as well. Um, I remember one of the highlights in my college days was a production of Keely and Dew, which was written by, sorry about that, was written about Jane, uh, by Jane Martin, um, and that's uh, a play about abortion. Um, and I remember the energy that existed between myself and the other cast members. Every night was different. Every performance was different. Uh, we were so focused on each other that 
any little change that one of us made with the line or with uh, the intention or the, uh, the the force of a line changes the whole scene going forward. Um, and of course, uh, in professional theater, a highlight of mine was doing a show called Baby Taj at Theater Works Mountain View out um, in the Bay Area in California. And that was a huge cast, about uh, 10, 15 people, I believe. Um, and there was a, a magic to that uh full cast performance as well. The, the theater was a 600-seat theater. The, you know, there were, that was, it was a comedy, and the energy from the audience really propelled us forward. Um, and, and once again, each night was very different in its own way. We were really working off of each other, um, making sure the, the punchlines were, were, were coming out, and we're really hitting all the marks. Um, with solo performance, you know, first of all, the, the saying is, I love my cast. <laughs> Um, but the, the difference is that I don't have anyone else on stage with me. Obviously I don't leave the stage ever. I have to be so focused and so reliant on myself. Each character of mine in intrusion is talking to someone in particular. Um, apart from the main character who is a college student. Um, but she's also talking to, she starts off talking to her friend and by the end of the play, she is talking to a group um, of protesters. Uh, the other characters are talking to very specific people. The politician is talking to his advisor. Um, the reporter is talking to her, um, to her boss. So in that way, I have to imagine what these people that I'm talking to are saying to me. Mm. I don't have the luxury of someone else on stage giving me um, you know, giving me a line with, with their with their particular intention at that moment. I have to hear and see this other person on stage with me, you know, even when they're not there in front of me. And I have to make sure that the tempo is there, that the pace is there, that the energy is all there without someone else being on stage with me. That's really interesting. I think a lot of times when we imagine what a one-man or one-woman performance will be, I think many of us think of the actor Hal Holbrook on stage impersonating Mark Twain and just standing there as Mark Twain talking to us as the audience, which can be a, you know, a wonderful thing. But you are talking about a, a really different kind of one-man or one-woman show in which it is almost as though there are other characters on the stage with you. It's just that... You have to imagine them as we uh, imagine them uh, being there. I'm really intrigued by that. Right, and I experiment as well. My first show, I have I have direct address to audience, which is what you just um, talked about, which is which is um, you know talking addressing the audience very directly. But in that show, I also play characters that are talking to specific people as well. In this show, intrusion. I wanted to try a different style altogether, which is just um, the characters are just talking to one, you know, one specific person and not the audience per se. Um, despite that, the audience, what I've seen in, during my tours is that the audiences are so engaged that they feel that they, that they are the person, that they are the person that each character is talking to. And that is the magic of theater, when the audience can imagine themselves actually being in the play. Hmm. We're speaking with uh, 
uh, Kurat Ann Kadwani about her one-woman play, Intrusion, which will be performed tomorrow night at Carthage College. So tell us how this took shape. And uh, in particular, I think I'm especially interested in the beginning of the process by which this one-woman show took took shape. Uh, I assume it began with this uh, very serious issue of, of sexual violence, sexual assault. Uh, did you have to spend a long time, in a sense, thinking about that issue and how to approach it? Actually, I started <clears throat> becoming very fascinated by this topic in 2012 uh, after the fatal gang rape of Jyoti Singh in New Delhi, India. This particular uh, sexual, this particular rape case made international news. And I was thinking why that was when gang rapes are something, nothing new in India, quite frankly. And um, India is the number one most sexually violent country in the world. And I thought, why is this particular case making headlines? So I started researching that, and I realized there were there were many factors, but one of the main factors was that the victim was a college student, and she, this sort of this this case sort of epitomized, um, you know, women gaining power, women getting educations, and the in how globalization and industrialization comes into play with that when men who are coming from farms from rural areas are moving into the cities but their mindset has not yet caught up with the changing times and so they brutally violated this woman uh so i actually set out to write a show about that but then as i was touring they call me q at colleges and as i was talking to a lot of the students and advisors telling you know they would ask me what, what are you working on now and i said oh i have an idea for a new show and they said oh please tell us because we would love to bring you back and so i thought wait a second you know if colleges would have a need for this why should i write a play about india about those people over there I started researching more, and I realized that America is the number 10 most sexually violent country in the world. Hmm. So, and, you know, there are 180 countries in the world, I'm not even sure exact, the exact number, but it's, it's, a, it's a very big problem. And um, I, I, then, I then refocused my research into why this problem exists in America, and, and how even regular, even the average person perpetuates um, rape culture. And also to provide a hopeful pers- perspective in the show, uh, to motivate audiences to really try to make a change, really try to change perspectives, try to um, really truly see how we're, how we're uh, behaving, how we're promoting or um, not promoting gender inequality, because that is the basis of sexual violence. The the play is ultimately uh, you portraying eight different characters, a psychiatrist, a prosecutor, a politician, a college student, a third grader, a day trader, a journalist, and a professor. How hard was it to come up with that array of eight characters, these particular eight characters? And along the way, were there certain characters you intended to portray and then discarded for one reason or another? Or was this just simply a matter of methodically lengthening this list of characters one by one? 
you know, the topic of sexual violence is so massive that as I was reading articles, um, you know, and, 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 and books and, and just and just gaining a lot of perspectives about the topic, um, I had to figure out which characters I wanted to use to tell the story, to focus the issue for audiences. I started off by asking myself a question. And I think that's how I write plays, is I try to answer a question for myself. In this particular play, the question that I was asking was, could we eradicate rape culture? Could we eradicate rape? And that's why I set the play 20 years in the future when rape has been eradicated. And then someone comes forward, so we see how this event is affecting all these different sectors of society. So the characters represent different sectors of society. That's why they have no names. They're just the politician, the the professor, the student, the reporter. And then I started thinking about why does it even happen? Why does rape even happen? What's the psychology behind that? That's why there's a psychologist character in there. And the psychologist character goes over a lot of different factors because one of the myths surrounding uh, sexual violence is that people who rape are psychopaths. But that is not true. 80% of people are sexually violated by somebody they know. And so when we think about these sort of statistics, I wanted to make a, a, a show and create characters that audience members could readily identify with. The politician is a Democrat. He does not like how sexual violence was addressed in the past. The past meaning our current day today, hmm. um, since the show is set 20 years in the future. Right. Yet he is not able to help the situation because it's election year. And monies cannot be diverted to help this when they're going to something else. So you start to see why um, people in power do not make this a priority. And also that, you know, there are, there are good people who make bad decisions. The psychologist, for example, doesn't want to go on the stand um, in the courtroom uh, because she's writing a book. So there are professional as well as personal conflicts that come in the way of people actively trying to stop rape culture. And so one of the messages of the play is, let's make this a priority. Rape culture, sexual violence affects a billion people globally, and that number is probably double or triple because, as we know, many people, most people don't come forward because of various stigmas. One thing I wanted to ask you about is what sort of the overall tenor of this piece is. We would assume that that it is largely very, very serious. Um, have you made the choice to leaven that seriousness um, with lightness, with even humor at certain points, or does not that really not have a place in this particular exploration of this very, very uh, serious topic? Oh, absolutely. There are two characters in particular that are audience favorites. One is the, the, the male day trader, who is this flashy guy. Uh, you know, he, he, he trades stocks from his home and... Um, you know, he, everybody's always, he's dancing and the audience is laughing and um, he's a fast talker. He then reveals his 
his account of when he was sexually violated when he was a teenager by a woman. And then he, the, the monologue, the character really becomes about how his lack of dealing with the trauma has led him to um, use his power through S&M, which is consensual, but it's all mixed up in toxic masculinity, if you will. There's another audience favorite character who's the third grader, the student character, um, who's a very cute character who, who does not talk about rape at all. In fact, many of the characters don't actually talk about rape. It almost be- becomes on the peripheral, you know. It, for, the, for the third grader, it's about values. When I wrote that character, I thought, what is happening between childhood and, let's say, adulthood? Something is happening where messages are being crisscrossed, right? We learn certain value systems when we're children, and then all of a sudden, that's gone. So I thought, what if we ingrained into nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds, basic principles of respect and um, understanding verbal and nonverbal cues? If someone says no, they mean no. And if, so- and if someone says yes, that's when they mean yes. So that when the subject becomes about sex, because look, you can't talk about rape if you don't talk about sex, right? When the subject does become about sex, these values, these principles will be so internalized that there will be no question. When somebody said no, you don't keep going. And so these two characters um, really add some humor and some uh, some levity into the play. Mm. And I, I should... I should think that that is a, a, a wise decision on your part uh, in that uh, if this is if the point of this production, among other things, is to to get people to open up to this issue and to uh, address it uh, more fully and more openly, uh, this is one way uh, for people to uh, be drawn into this this topic uh, in a sense more 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 fully. I wonder, uh, from performance to performance, how identical is each performance? Or uh, do you find yourself varying uh, exactly what you say and how you say it uh, from performance to performance? Well, I try to be line perfect for every show. Okay. <laughs> so, so my audience is, you know, the best show that, they can, that I can give them. Right. So, <laughs> so in other words, this is, this is, a, this is a scripted work uh, with, uh, exactly. with very little, if any, improvisation on your part absolutely it's a it's a play it's scripted and i do the same play every time Um, what does change is the performance so while i'm playing a character i might push the objective of the character a little bit harder or i might um imagine in my mind as i'm up there that the character that the person i'm talking to maybe they say something to me in a tone and i might I might answer them a bit more sharply than I had before. So things like that, minor things like that, um, in the delivery, in the in, in you know how real the character is, um, and the moments that I take, that changes. And I allow myself when I'm up there playing each character to really flesh out each moment. And I and I allow myself to go to to get as the actors say to get there. I don't rush. I mean, I keep the tempo of the piece. The tempo of the play is pretty fast. Um, But at the same time, I allow myself as a character to get from one thought to another organically. 
without without saying to myself, oh yeah, this is my next line. This is what I have, you know, this is what I have to, this is how I have to act now. Hmm. I let myself say, okay, how, how am I feeling right now? How am I going to get to that next line? And that's how the performance is constantly changing. Interesting. And improving, getting better each time I do it. Right. I want to also ask you about the fact that there is someone who directed this. Uh, and I, I think some people hearing that this is, uh, a one-woman play that you have written and that you perform that there would be no need for a director that you would, in a sense, direct yourself. But I, uh, I've, you are now maybe the third person I have had the, the pleasure of talking to on this program uh, doing a, a one-woman or one-man show where there has been a director. And i starting to realize that that is actually probably the way it almost always happens. For you and your director, what was that working relationship and what role did they play in the shaping of Intrusion? I absolutely need a director for every show that I'm in, including solo plays, because I can't see myself on, you know, on stage. So I, I interviewed a lot of people who wanted to direct this piece, and I eventually hired Constance Hester uh, to, to be my director because I felt that she had a real focus when it came to intrusion. In fact, um, she was a recent college graduate herself, and she had a personal interest in sexual violence. And I, and I found that to be um, fantastic because she had uh, an even more detailed eye and, and personal investment in the piece. I told her, listen, I'm going to come into rehearsals giving you a lot. I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to work on my characters on my own. What I need from you is to give me your detailed eye, nitpick, help me to see, help me to connect the dots from one character to another. So, for example, she, did, she showed me one, one thing where, where she told me to highlight something in my performance because politician has a line that says um you know it's a long it's a long line but short form he says when we do this everyone wins and then in the next scene the 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 narrator the the college student has a line she says when we're silent everyone loses and when i wrote it i didn't purposely write it like that but in the performance that she heard it and she said, oh, I want you to really punch those lines. That is something that I probably never would have seen myself. Hmm. She also helped me change words here and there. I have, a, I have a phrase that the reporter says, stay with us as we cover every aspect of this rape resurrection. I think I had a different word in there. And she said, no, I think it should be resurrection because of the, you know, the, the mood that that, that that invokes and that, and also just the strangeness of the word erection and resurrection, you know, so there were a lot, there was a lot that she added to the, to the piece. And she also helped me to, to, to see that by the end of the piece, the college student who starts off just distressed because she hears of uh, someone being raped and then moves into having a candlelight vigil based on research that she's done. That's how they used to do it back then. Back in the day, they used to have candlelight vigils, right? We, have, we do those all the time right now. And then by the end, she's having a full-blown protest. Constance said, by the end, I have to be that Gloria Steinem character. I, ha the, you know, I have to be strong and bold and powerful 
and still be a bit vulnerable, but the audience at that point needs to see a full transformation of that character. That is precisely the reason why I needed a director, because I thought I was doing that. And she said, no, do it even more. I need to see it even more. And so th- this is this is the true benefit of having a director. They can monitor the pace. They can monitor the tempo. And they can really see, uh, make sure that all the characters are distinct and um, have their own, uh, not just voices in terms of the writing, but have their own characterizations. We worked on physical aspects as well. I wanted each character to have their, like, at least one uh, specific hand gesture um, and a vocal quality. So we worked a lot on that as well to find that for each character. Actress Kurat Ankadwani's one-woman play, Intrusion, will be performed tomorrow night at Carthage College's Wartburg Auditorium under the auspices of Carthage's Gender and Women's Studies program. There will be a nominal admission fee of $5 at the door to help defray the costs. My thanks to Kurat An Kadwani and also Professor Ellen Hauser for being part of today's morning show here on WGTD.